we are in a series on the everlasting gospel. You may remember in the, remember in the first part, we talked about the goodness of God. You know, Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that we have a commission in Revelation chapter 14. And in that commission, starting with chapter 14, verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to, those, to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, right? To every nation, kindred, trunk, and people, or tribe, and depending on what translation you're reading. And the first thing that it says in that message is, fear God and give him glory. And in part one, we talked about the glory of God representing the goodness or the character of God and how an essential part of the gospel message is understanding God's goodness. And what we covered in there was that God has a love that we would call unconditional, that he doesn't love us because of what we do and how we perform, but because of who he is. And that's a powerful truth. We learned that the wrath of God is not upon people or against people, but against sin that God has to destroy sin in order to save sinners, and that he will do that. And so right now what he's trying to do is separate his people from sin so that when that sin is destroyed, the people aren't. And so uh, we we learned that, and then we learned that uh, God's forgiveness is not like man's forgiveness. When we get in a situation where we're asking forgiveness from another human being, oftentimes, in most cases anyway, what we're asking is that that person would stop being angry with us. And I mentioned in part one that we tend to look at God that way sometimes, and we, just, we think that asking God forgiveness is asking him to stop being angry with us. But that's not forgiveness in the Bible. Bible forgiveness isn't asking to change God, but it's asking God to change us, literally to give for our sin. And God gives the righteousness of his Son for our sin. And so with all those elements of the goodness of God and that powerful core of the gospel, I mentioned at the close of that message that while that is an important truth, it's not all there is to the gospel because there are going to be people who are lost who God loved unconditionally. There are going to be people who are lost who God did not have an attitude towards, who God was not intending to pour out his wrath upon. Knowing the goodness of God in and of itself is not all there is to the good news. Now today, the message is called Another Gospel, and before we get into it, I want to kneel and ask God to bless our time and his word, so I invite you to bow your heads as I do so today. Father in heaven, Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being in your presence today. We thank you so much for your unconditional love. We thank you so much for the power of your forgiveness. We thank you, Father, that you have not appointed us to wrath, but to receive salvation. Now this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our understanding. As your people here at the end of time with an important message to proclaim to the world, the everlasting gospel message, I pray you'll give us clarity of understanding. For, Father, we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We're going to the 11th chapter, starting in the first verse. Second Corinthians 11 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul says here, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. 
indeed, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste or pure virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent, what? As a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another what? Did you know not every Jesus that you hear about is the same guy? Apostle Paul says there's such thing as somebody preaching another Jesus. Oh, they might use the name of Jesus, but it might not fit the character of the one we read about in Scripture. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different what? A different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now, the words here in the New King James may be a little bit confusing, I'm going to read what the New Century Version says here. He says, you are very willing to accept a spirit or gospel that is different. In other words, when he's saying, you may well put up with it, what he's saying is, I'm concerned about you. You guys don't have enough discernment to know when somebody comes and preaches a different gospel, you're going to go along with it and think it's the same thing that we've been preaching. So he's concerned that they're going to be deceived as the serpent deceived Eve. Now, I'm working on a sermon. I've been thinking about how the serpent deceived Eve. And basically what he did was got Eve to trust in his word instead of God's word. Listen carefully, to believe in his words instead of God's word. So I'm working on a sermon called Unrighteousness by Faith. You know what righteousness by faith is, but it's interesting that it was her belief in the serpent that led to unrighteousness. So you're going to obey whoever you believe. Whether, what does Paul say, we serve, we're servants of the one we obey, whether of sin leading to death or... Obedience leading to righteousness. So he's concerned here that they may follow another gospel. And the reality is, just like the name of Jesus, you can use the word gospel and throw it around, and we can all talk about the gospel, and you can talk to your other Christian friends about the gospel. We can all be saying gospel, 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 and talking about entirely different things. Today, I want to talk about the gospel, and I'm going to give a little Adventist history lesson. You like history, don't you? Uh, some of you maybe do, and some of you maybe don't. Pastor Daniel alluded to this recently. Now, there's a lot of history. We have a Seventh-day Adventist, and there have been a lot of discussions and debates about the gospel, and I certainly don't want to get into all of that. But there are some points that I think are important for us to understand getting into our topic today. And I want to go back to an era in the 1950s, when certain Adventist leaders met with certain evangelical leaders to try to remove the stigma that was on Adventism because, let's face it, our belief system is not what the Orthodox Christian belief system is. We don't believe just the same way. And, of course, that has in one of the, the two of the individuals that were met with was a man by the name of Donald Barnhouse. Now, Barnhouse was a, the editor of the leading Christian, uh, evangelical Christian magazine. Now, when I use that, use that word evangelical, I just want to touch on the idea here. If you look up the, even, the, the word in the dictionary, evangelical just means you believe that we ought to share the gospel. Well, we all ought to be evangelical. Amen? 
But evangelical in this term is a word that these leaders used of themselves to describe the basic uh, uh, framework of or the belief system of the fundamental Bible-believing Christian. So the uh, Donald Barnhouse was the editor of Eternity Magazine, a leading evangelical magazine, and then there was a man by the name of uh, Walter uh, Martin, and Walter Martin was the author of a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. And in his first version, he had included Seventh-day Adventists in that book. Now, I want you to put yourself in that place. And these men, uh, and I'm not giving you all the background of how this came together, but they want to meet with you as Seventh-day Adventists and say, hey, can we ask you some questions about your faith? And depending on how our conversation goes, we're going to decide where to put you in this new edition of Kingdom of the Cults. Well, who wants your church to be called a cult, right? So let's go ahead and meet together, and they figured we'll meet and diffuse the concerns of these evangelical leaders. Now, here's the problem that I think in retrospect we understand more clearly. You can't place Adventism in an evangelical framework. Now you say, why, why is that? Well, let's give one very glaring, obvious reason. They don't believe the law is binding upon the Christian, and we do. You think that changes your belief system a little bit? Furthermore, the men that we met with were Calvinists. They believed in predestination, right? God already determined who's saved and lost. You don't have a personal choice in the matter. Is that different from how we believe? How are you going to fit how we believe into that framework? They also believed in the doctrine of original sin that says that we're guilty because of what Adam did, not because of what we do. Seventh-day Adventists don't believe that. So, you know, there are some complications here. They believed in once saved, always saved, right? They believed the law wasn't binding upon the Christian. All of these things, how do you take Adventist belief system and put it in that framework? It's not going to come out right. Now, we can't fault them for attempting it, and I don't. But I want to tell you that we've got to process through because there's been some aftermath to this. We've got to process through this a minute. Let's take, let's take the idea of salvation. What does the Bible say we're being saved from? Sin. What is the, how does the Bible define sin? Sin, the clearest definition in the Bible is transgression of the law. Now you could tell me, well, it says in Romans whatsoever is not of faith is uh, sin, and you can tell me that James says, he who knows the good to do and does not do it, him is sin, but that doesn't define it. But 1 John 3, 4 says sin is the transgression of the law. Now, if you get rid of the law, what happens? What happens to sin? The gospel's been referred to as the divine remedy for sin. You get rid of the law, and suddenly you have a medication to cure an illness that doesn't exist. Let me say that again. If the gospel is divine remedy for sin, which is law-breaking, and the law doesn't exist, the law has been done away with, we should say that, for the Christian. That means that the gospel now is a medication or a cure for a disease that no longer exists. So I'm not going to call the evangelical gospel a false gospel, but I will call it an incomplete gospel. You see, Seventh-day Adventists, because of our viewpoint, our understanding of the law of God, let's talk about something else for a minute. Let's talk about justification. 
The word justification means, let's put it this way, the word justification has to do with showing somebody's innocence. Now, we use it in everyday terms like this. I could say, uh, I could get an argument with David Carter. And in the midst of the argument, I could say, Dave could say something to me trying to excuse himself. And I say, Dave, you're just trying to justify yourself. Have you ever heard that kind of language? You ever use that with somebody? You're just trying to justify yourself. What is he doing if he's trying to justify himself? He's trying to make himself innocent, right? The Bible says that man needs to be justified. Now, let me ask you this. Is Mr. Carter going to be looking for justification if there's no accusation? When does a person try to justify himself or herself? When somebody's accusing you of something, right? So justification only happens in the context of an accusation. The question is, where is the accusation coming from? Because we talk about justification by faith. Where is the accusation coming from? Now, people tell me the devil. Look, God doesn't care what the devil has to say. We see that in Zechariah 3, among other places. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Even the Lord that's chosen Jerusalem. I don't care. You're, you're a liar. You know where the Bible says that accusation comes from? Go to Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and look at verse 19. Romans 3, 19, the Bible says here, we know, now we know that what, Ever the law says, it says to who? Those who are under the law that, how many mouths? Every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become what? Guilty before God. Where's the accusation coming from? Come from the law of God, right? Look, the law of God just shows, it's just like, a, look, if you've got a guy who goes and robs a bank, and the law says don't steal, the law is going to call him a thief. The law of God bears witness to sin and righteousness. And so the law of God brings the condemnation, brings the accusation. Once we're accused by the law as sinners, then we need to be justified. But we can't justify ourselves, so we have to look for justification somewhere else, and we find it through Christ. Now, we'll get to that. But the question is this. If there's no law, why are we talking about justification? It doesn't make sense. And so the whole concept of salvation changes when you're talking about it in an evangelical context, because if there's no law, then salvation is some way of changing God's mood to make him willing to look at you differently. But for the Seventh-day Adventist, salvation is about God changing us and transforming us into his image, so we're in harmony with his will. So as I said, if there's no law... The gospel becomes a cure for a disease that no longer exists. This is why we find statements like these that I'm going to share with you here. From Christ's Object Lessons, page 128, it says, No man can rightly present the law of God without what? The gospel or the gospel without the law. Now, friends, I just want to tell you something. We get into this in the Adventist church. You preach too much about law, and somebody comes up and says, You need to preach the gospel. 
Well, I don't disagree that we need to preach the gospel, but notice that you can't separate the two. The law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root. The gospel is the fragrant blossom and fruit which it bears. Look at this statement. Evangelism 2.31 says, Both the law and the gospel are blended in what? No discourse are they to be divorced. Well, that comes from our framework, our understanding, not just of the fact that the law of God is the foundation of his throne and his government, but there's another piece in this puzzle. Now, Pastor Daniel's been talking about the heavenly sanctuary and its framework. I'm going to talk about the same thing. We're going to be using a different term for it. It's called the great controversy. Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh Adventists' understanding of salvation is that salvation includes more than just getting you and me saved. Salvation means the restoration of humanity and of God's universe into the state where it was before sin ever entered the picture. To us, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is not just for humanity. In fact, go with me to John 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Let's go to John chapter 12 and look at verse 31. I'm sorry, verse 32. John 12, 32. Now notice the words of Jesus. You're probably familiar with these. Jesus, speaking of his death on the cross, said, And I, if I am what? Lifted up from the earth, will draw all... What's unique in your Bible about that next word? It's italicized. You know what that means? That means the translators supplied it. There's not an original equivalent in the Greek. What it literally says is, when I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all to myself, not just all people, not just all men. Why? Because Jesus' death on the cross was not just for humanity. Let's see it in another place in Scripture. Go to Colossians 1. Past the Corinthians and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1 and verse 19. The Bible says in Colossians 1 and verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him, speaking of Christ, to reconcile how much? All things to himself by him, whether things where? On earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Hmm. Reconciling things in heaven? What could this be talking about but the great controversy between good and evil? We understand that the sacrifice of Christ is effective in saving all humanity, but beyond that is effective in getting rid of sin in the universe and restoring everything to God's original plan. Notice this statement from the Bible Echo. Back in 1893, it says, Through the plan of salvation, a larger purpose is to be wrought out even than the salvation of man and the redemption of the earth. Through the revelation of the character of God in Christ, the beneficence of the divine government will be manifested before the universe. Let me ask you a question. How did the great controversy start in heaven? Okay, rebellion of? Lucifer, what did he do in his rebellion? 
Okay, he wanted the position of God, and how did he go about trying to get it? By lying about what? About God's character, right? Let me ask you this question. If the great controversy started because of lies about God's character, is it ever going to be able to finish until those lies are shown to be false and the truth is cleared up? No. So, more than just the salvation of man and the redemption of the earth, there's this whole great controversy to deal with that the plan of redemption has to address, and this is what this is talking about. The charge of Satan, let me back up a little bit. Through the revelation of the character of God in Christ, the beneficence, that's just the goodness, of the divine government will be manifested before the universe. The charge of Satan against God refuted, the nature and result of sin made plain, and the perpetuity, that is just the everlasting nature, of the law fully demonstrated. God could not, even to save the lost race, change that law. People say the law was changed. Folks, if the law was going to be changed, why didn't God just change it instead of making his son die for breaking it? Look, you're going to change it, change it, and then guess what? There's no more law. And oh, Jesus, you don't have to die for the law breaking because there is no law. The strongest argument in favor of the law is the fact that Jesus had to die for our law breaking. God could not, even to save the lost race, change that law. God is love, and to change the law would be to deny himself, to overthrow those principles with which are bound up the good of the universe. The working out of the plan of salvation reveals not only to men but to angels the character of God. Through the plan of salvation, the justice and mercy of God are fully vindicated, and to all eternity, rebellion will never again arise. Affliction never can touch the universe of God. Wow, what a powerful statement. It's never going to happen again. You may ask why it's going on like it is. Why are we on this earth? Why does God allow the evil to go on? Because this is a divine experiment, for lack of a better expression. And when it's done, there will be no, not the slightest thought in the mind of any of the redeemed that, hey, let's try that again. Let's do our own way instead of God's way. So the plan of redemption is far-reaching, farther-reaching than many people take it to be, and certainly farther reaching than those evangelical leaders were taking it to be. And so to try to fit Adventism into their framework just didn't make sense. And there's some other challenges with that. Barnhouse and Martin's major issues with Adventism were as follows. Number one, Adventism's belief, at least at the present time, not this present time, that time, in the fallen human nature of Christ. Now at that time, Seventh-day Adventists pretty universally believed that Jesus took Adam's fallen nature, or man's fallen nature, but brought into it his divine nature. And you don't got to get caught up in all that at this moment. But, they, but that, that was something that they had issue with. Now keep in mind, they believed in original sin. And original sin meant when you're born, you're guilty of sin because Adam sinned no matter what. But if Christ took a nature like ours and yet through his divine nature overcame, well, that doesn't fit well with the idea of predestination. I'll explain that in a moment. None of these things do. They didn't like the idea of what they called the incomplete atonement theory. That's just talking about the heavenly sanctuary. You see, Seventh-day Adventists know from the Bible 
from studying the type that God set out in the Old Testament with the sanctuary, that the animal sacrificed on the burnt altar wasn't the end of the service. There was an end of the year. In fact, after the, the sacrificial animal was put on the altar, the priest then had to go into the temple. Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 that if Jesus were on earth, he could not have been a priest. So there goes any argument of saying he did his priestly work while he was on the earth. He couldn't have. And so for Seventh-day Adventists, we see the sacrifice on the cross as the perfect and complete atoning sacrifice. But then we believe that Jesus, by virtue of that atoning sacrifice, went up to mediate, as the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, among other places, to be our high priest and minister the benefits of that atoning sacrifice for you and me. I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. But that doesn't sit well with... Now, first of all, you see, you've got to understand that predestination says everything's done. There's not a good... I'll tell you right now, there's not a good explanation in, in a predestination mindset of why we're still sitting here. A big element, a key element in evangelical Christianity, whether you're predestination or not, is what they call crucicentricity. That is the centrality of the cross and the importance of the cross. Evangelical likes to say everything was done at the cross. They feel good about that. There's only one problem with that. Sin still exists. So everything can't be done. And if you read your Bible, even a little bit, you'll see that that's the case. When Paul in Philippians 1 gives us that promise that uh, uh, God will, through Christ, what does he say in Philippians 1, 6? Um, he who has begun a good work in you will, what? Complete it unto the day. Where, where's the completing of a work if it was already complete? Obviously, the apostle Paul saw something wasn't done, right? Go to the Galatians, and Paul tells the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, that which has begun in the spirit, are you now seeking to make perfect or finish in the flesh? Once again, he's speaking about something that started but wasn't done. Well, that makes sense to somebody who studies the sanctuary. We know what that is. The sacrifice was perfect, but the sacrifice has to be applied. And that's what Jesus ascended to heaven to do. Well, that, that's a challenge for somebody who's rejected the heavenly sanctuary. So there's no fitting that into their framework. What they're going to do is come away from that and say, you guys sound cultish to us. Why? Because we don't believe like you do? Let's say we go to Scripture and look at Scripture about this. But that's not what happened. They didn't like the idea of an incomplete atonement. Now keep something else in mind. Predestination, everything is done. I don't have to worry about anything. Hey, how I live is inconsequential. I mean, I should live a good life as a Christian, but it's inconsequential. I'm saved and it's done. Now you introduce the idea of overcoming sin. See, in their, you can't overcome sin in their framework. Now you introduce that idea. That sin should be overcome. Well, guess what that does? It's robbing me of that assurance I had when I believed it was all done and it was predestination. Now we talk about a heavenly sanctuary where Jesus ministers right now as our heavenly high priest and takes the choices we are making and works his character in us. Well, that doesn't fit well with predestination because that takes away that confidence I had that I could kind of sit and rest in predestination. Are you following what I'm saying? In other words... Predestination gave a, what I'm going to call a false sense of security. 
Everything's done. There's nothing to worry about. But the gospel in Adventism, and I want to say the gospel of Scripture, doesn't allow for that. There is not a once saved, always saved picture in Scripture. You have a choice every day to follow Christ or not, and he's not going to force you. And I'm going to tell you that if you put your confidence in Christ, there's no reason you shouldn't have assurance of salvation. But if you don't, there's no reason you should have assurance. Christ didn't come to offer assurance to people who didn't put their trust in him. They had a problem with what they called Galatianism in the Adventist church. Faith plus obedience. That's what they call the Sabbath. Well, I hope we know better than that here, that we don't obey God to be saved. We don't keep the Sabbath to be saved. We keep the Sabbath because we love God and because of the salvation he's given us in Christ. But you've got to understand where that's coming from for an evangelical who isn't keeping the Sabbath. Oh, that's Galatianism. But the underlying issue, I believe, and I think we see elements of it today, was that of overcoming sin, which is the essence of what the sanctuary is about. Look at it with me in Hebrews. I don't want to just take, have you take my word for it. If time permitted, I, w- I went through this last week with every chapter of Hebrews, but I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 9. The, the Apostle Paul summarizes here the purpose of Christ in the sanctuary above. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 8, he's already laid out the fact that Jesus is a high priest in the sanctuary in heaven that was made not with human hands, but by God. And he says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, verse 24, let's begin in 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with what? hands, that's the earthly sanctuary, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That for us is key. The high priest was a representative of the people, and this is what it's saying. Jesus has entered into the presence of God to represent us, just like the earthly priest represented the people. Not that he should offer himself often, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, literally it would say holy places, which I won't go into right now. Verse 26, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, notice the language, he has appeared to do what? Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now here the apostle tells us the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice. What is it? To put away sin. How much sin do you think he wants to put away? How much sin do you think he's limited with? Saints, I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus is going to put away sin. Jesus is going to take care of sin. He's not going to get it and say, oh, I missed a spot in the corner. It's not going to happen that way. The Bible tells us that this is why he came. He appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice what it goes on to say. Verse 27, as it is appointed men to die once and after this, the judgment so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I want you to understand the picture. He appeared once to put away sin. He's coming the second time apart from sin. 
Some translations say not to deal with sin without reference to sin. The only point the Bible's making, the apostles making, is Jesus ascended to heaven as a high priest, but he's not coming back as a high priest. He's coming back as the king of kings. High priests deal with sin. He went to deal with sin. He's going to get rid of it. And when he's done getting rid of sin, he's coming again. Not to deal with sin anymore. And time permitting, we would break down the sanctuary and the services and the Day of Atonement is in particular as God's method to rid the universe of sin. But that means the overcoming of sin, and this was a problem for a belief system built on original sin, predestination, and grace instead of law. And in a case like that, salvation then of necessity, because you don't believe in overcoming, because you don't believe in law, salvation of necessity becomes merely about forgiveness and not about transformation. In the evangelical framework, Jesus is seen as the Savior from the penalty of sin, but not from the power of sin. And so that spills out into phrases like this. Well, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. What's that saying? I'm no different than you are, but God looks at me different. Is that Christianity? That we're really no different? Does the gospel not change a person? And some of this may help us to understand just a little bit why in the beginning of this thing in the 1950s, when one of our ministers sent Donald Barnhouse a copy of the book Steps to Christ, Barnhouse actually did a write-up editorial in Eternity magazine and said that the book Steps to Christ was full of half-truths introducing satanic error and that it bore, quote, the mark of the counterfeit and was, quote, false in all its parts. And Seventh-day Adventists think, oh, I believe the same gospel as mine. No, you don't. Or if you do, you've got an incomplete one. See, he didn't like Barnhouse read Steps to Christ. He's a, he's a, a, a Calvinist. Steps to Christ is saying that God has given salvation freely to everybody. Now, that's not true, not for Calvinists. That's false. Brothers and sisters, we can't seek approval for our gospel from men. We need to seek approval for the gospel from God. And so this, and it wasn't this only this, this meeting with these evangelical leaders in the 50s. But what's happened is, for many Seventh-day Adventists, and you know it as well as I do, we don't talk about character perfection anymore. That's a bad, in fact, the word perfection isn't good. We like to substitute the words maturity and completeness. We don't talk about overcoming sin. We don't talk about this stuff because it's works-based. I mean, even in our own discussions, right? It used to not be an issue to discuss it. We want to talk about forgiveness. Hey, I'm glad to talk about forgiveness, but you know, too often what we're talking about is that evangelical forgiveness where we're changing God. We don't include transformation too often. And so we say things like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. I'm not going to count somebody out for saying something like that, but what I'm telling you is what's happened, some of the fallout on us, is that all the Adventist 
understanding of justification and sanctification and the gospel have been confused. All the subjective elements, what I mean by that is what happens in the believer, have been downplayed, if not entirely left out. And if time permitted, I would document all that. Personal choice, Christian behavior, transformation of character are marginalized and neglected while we're urged to focus more on Jesus. Now look, I'm all about focusing more on Jesus. But there's no such thing as focusing on Jesus without focusing on your life. And I've given this example before. You get a husband and wife go to a marriage counselor, and they're having problems, and the marriage counselor looks to the husband and says, look, if you want your relationship to get better, you need to start working on some of your behavior. Hey, doc, leave my behavior out of this. I'm talking about my relationship with my wife. That doesn't make sense. But we do it in Christianity, even in Adventism, all the time. It's confusing. And it's gotten so bad that in some instances, the gospel becomes the catalyst to resist any preaching of doctrine, any instruction for admonition or reproof or correction, any calling sin by its right name, basically any preaching that touches the practical life, we're like, whoa, hold on a minute, let's talk about the gospel. You want to talk about reform? You want to talk about changing our lives? You want to talk about addressing personal sins in our lives? Somebody's quick to say, hey, we need to talk about the gospel. What gospel are you talking about? I want you to see something in Scripture with me. I'm not going to look at justification right away. I'm going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 26. And I just want you to catch on to something here. Acts, chapter 26. And verse... I'm going to read verse 18. We're in the middle of a, of a sentence here. But we'll get the piece that I want to I want to zero in on here in Acts twenty six eighteen. Bible is talking. The Lord is talking to the Apostle Paul and sending him to to the Gentiles. Paul's talking about his conversion, and he says he's going to send them to the Gentiles in verse eighteen to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are what. Sanctified by what? Faith in me. Now, we get into these discussions on justification and sanctification. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I know some who have. and uh, Maybe it's not used in the term sanctification. Maybe it's just obedience. But I want you to notice something. The Bible says we're sanctified by what? By faith. Okay? What are we justified by? By faith. What faith? The same faith. So it's kind of silly to try to get too particular about justification and sanctification when faith brings both of them to you. The same faith that justifies you sanctifies you. And yet, again, we have sometimes some confusion between the two terms. Now I want you to notice the screen here. This is from Messages to Young People, page 35, and it tells us this. The righteousness by which we are justified... That is declared just in the sight of God is, and it uses this word imputed. Okay, now the Bible uses that word, but I need to use that for some other statements. 
The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our what? Fitness for heaven. So in other words, justification, and we often say it this way, justification is the work of a moment. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Justification is like being born. Sanctification is like living once you've been born. It's learning to live the new life. So justification is what happens when you come to God and you ask for forgiveness for your sins and you claim Christ as your Savior. Bam, in that moment, God views you as just as righteous as his son Jesus Christ. And you are justified before God. And the righteousness of Christ is, the word is imputed. It's, it's put to your account, like somebody making a deposit into your bank account. It's put to your account. Then it says, the, 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 in other words, you've got a whole past that was unrighteous, and it's like all your unrighteousness is on the whiteboard, and somebody goes up and wipes it all away, and boom, puts all the righteousness of Jesus there, and it takes the place of every bit of unrighteousness you had. It's imputed. It's put to your account. When you accept Jesus, all of your sinful past is gone, and in its place stands the righteousness of Christ. And then it says the righteousness by which we are sanctified. So notice the way she uses the terms here. Both are talking about righteousness, and righteousness comes by faith. Remember what we just said. The same faith that brings you justification brings you sanctification. One is the righteousness by which we're justified, imputed, and the righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. That simply means that now that I've accepted Christ, he begins to, to give his power for my daily living, and he imparts to me his power moment by moment, day by day. So that's how we sometimes differentiate the two. But notice this next statement. Our only ground, steps to Christ, page 63, our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ, what? Imputed to us, and in that wrought by his spirit working in and through us. That's the imparted. Okay, our ground of hope is not in one, it's in both. Justification and sanctification. Notice this statement in the 1888 collection, page 897. Many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Now, if time permitted, I could tell you, and it would bore you with ab infinitum on, on the, the, how some people have made a big, in fact, these evangelical leaders, they made this big deal about how justification is part of the gospel, but sanctification is not. I know Adventist leaders and pastors who hold to that viewpoint. Ellen White cautions. She says, look, let's not be so particular about trying to divide between justification and sanctification. While they both are different things, they both come through the experience of faith in Christ. She says, into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. Why try to be more minute than is inspiration on the vital question of righteousness by faith? You are in danger of making a world of an atom and an atom of a world. Okay? Don't do it. Now, we're going to make sense of this in just a moment. But I want to share a couple more things. Now, there's been a a misunderstanding, and I've heard this in a number of places, just as people relate to me, imputed righteousness, there's been a misunderstanding among Adventists about Christ's imputed righteousness, and Ellen White wrote about it here in Faith and Works, page 18. She says, the danger has been presented to me again and again of entertaining as a people 
False ideas. What kind of ideas? False ideas of justification by faith. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to the congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his relation to the law as was the offering of Cain. Now, there's a lot I could say on this, but I'm just going to suffice to say this right now, and if you disagree, you can talk to me later. This was how things were when the message came in 1888. This is not how things are now. We don't hear so much of law and so much of doctrine anymore that we've just had it up to here with it. You go back and listen to the preaching that was happening in those days, and it's not the preaching that's happening in these days. I was talking to a young man, one of our pastors here in Michigan. He's taking a class, a religion class, from one of our colleges. And in the course of, the instructors, uh, of his instruction, he mentioned the Millerite movement. One of the Adventist religion students raises his hand, and the teacher calls him, and he says, Teacher, what is the Millerite movement? So the teacher then looks to the class, and he says, Who of you wants to tell him what the Millerite movement is? None of the other students could. Folks, I hear people go on and on and on in the church about how, oh, we just have so much of this doctrine. I don't know what bubble you're living in. Our kids don't even know the stuff anymore. In Michigan, we're we're a little bit different here in Michigan in that regard. To some people's chagrin. But I'm just going to tell you, and I'm not saying that this is, she's making a, an important point here, but I want you to notice what she goes on to say. And we're going to flesh this out. I have been shown that many have been kept from the faith because of the mixed, confused ideas of what? Salvation. Because the ministers have worked in a wrong manner to reach hearts. The point that has been urged upon my mind for years is the what? The imputed righteousness of Christ. I'm going to interject this here. This is where we go. Because of the background that I've been sharing in this sermon, today many Seventh-day Adventists read that and say imputed righteousness of Christ is simply talking about that which we have apart from us, outside of us, what Jesus did on the cross has nothing to do with what he does in our hearts. Has just to do with the goodness of God, his love for us, his forgiveness. I won't totally disagree with that, but notice, she clears herself up. The point that has been urged upon my mind for years is the imputed righteousness of Christ. She said, this is what our people need to know. I have wondered that this matter was not made the subject of discourses in our churches throughout the land when the matter has been kept so constantly urged upon me, and I have made it, notice what she says, I have made it the subject of nearly every discourse and talk that I have given to the people. There's the sticky point. I know Seventh-day Adventists are all about this statement until they get there, and they're like, yeah, but the thing is, did Ellen White, is she? She says, all the sermons I preached did exactly this. And I know people who have a lot to say about the imputed righteousness of Christ who can't reconcile Ellen White's sermons with it. You know why? Because their idea of the imputed righteousness of Christ is not a biblical idea. For some people, the imputed righteousness of Christ is only, like I said, outward. But I want you to notice some statements here. That will clarify this. Faith I live by page 112. Notice what Ellen White says. Having made us righteous 
having done what? Made us righteous through the imparted, imputed righteousness of Christ. It says, when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, when I accept Jesus as my Savior, in that moment, not only does he declare me righteous, he makes me righteous. He looks upon us. Uh, God pronounces us. Okay, start again. Having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. He looks upon us as his dear children. Therefore being, and she quotes from Romans 5, therefore being justified, right? Made righteous. You'll see that in a minute. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's another one. Review and Herald of July 12, 1892. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through what? Not the imparted. Through the imputed righteousness of Christ, we're enabled to keep the law. Does that sound like something must happen in our hearts through the imputed righteousness? Is there some kind of transformation? I'm going to tell you, I'm not keeping the law of God until my heart's transformed. Because the law is spiritual and I'm carnal, the Bible says. So the imputed righteousness of Christ makes a change in the individual. It's transforming. And that's the point I made earlier. The gospel to many people is just outward and it's just about God's forgiveness and you're just going to have to be that way. It says the imputed righteousness transforms us. Notice again, Signs of the Times, June 18, 1894, Christ clothed his divinity with humanity and endured the test upon the point of appetite, ambition, and love of the world, thus making it possible for man to keep the commandments of God through what? Wow, his imputed righteousness. Now let's finish up by looking at Scripture and looking at a couple verses here. Going to Romans, and this is one of the clearest passages on the gospel in the Bible. With the background we've looked at, Romans 1, 16 and 17, where our Scripture reading was, is plain, or should be plain. Romans 1, 16 and 17. The Bible says, For I am not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ, for or because it is the power of God unto what? Salvation. Now let's pause here. What is salvation? Salvation is being saved from what? Sin. And sin is what? Law-breaking. What does it mean to be saved from law-breaking? It means you've got to be a law-keeper. To be saved from your sin is to be made a law-abiding citizen. And the Bible says that the gospel is a transforming power. In fact, and, and, and I'm glad that uh, Steve Williams and I were talking beforehand, he brought this point up. The Greek word for power in this verse is the word dunamis. What English word can you think of that sounds kind of like dunamis? Dynamite. Now, dynamite was invented in 1867. And dynamite is powerful. I want you to think about the guy who invented dynamite, or whoever named it, was thinking around and saying, hmm, what can I name this stuff? What's a good word for it? And he used the same word that we're reading here in the Bible for the gospel. It is the power, it's explosive power to change the life. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me today. The good news of the gospel is that it can transform you and change you and give you victory over your sin. 
That is the good news. Think about it this way, okay? Imagine you're in prison with a life sentence, okay? You with me? The governor comes by. He's got a pardon in his pocket. Sound good? Comes to your cell, begins talking with you, says, hey, I got good news for you. I've got a pardon right here. And what this means is this. Now, I'm not going to let you out, but while you're sitting here for the rest of your life in this cell, just know that you're forgiven. And then he walks out. And the guard stands by and he overhears it and he says, man, what good news. Is that good news? The word gospel means good news. It's not good news just to know we're forgiven. Unless we understand the biblical concept of forgiveness that we're given the righteousness of Christ in place of our sin and we're transformed and the power of God makes us new creatures. And that makes sense to you today if you see yourself in that jail cell, if you really realize you're a sinner, if you see what your character is without Christ, you long to be somebody different. But you know, there's a lot of Christians who are just in it for name, and they sit in church, and they don't see anything wrong with themselves. And they're just happy with the gospel of forgiveness. Because their gospel of forgiveness is just changing God, not changing them. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You say, but what about the grace of God? Let's talk about the grace of God for just a minute. Let's go to Acts 20, verse 24. Acts 20, verse 24. Acts 20, verse 24, notice what it says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy... And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the what? The gospel of the grace of God. So the gospel is also called the gospel of grace. Now follow me to a couple passages. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you're familiar with this passage, but you may not have looked at it the same way we're going to look at it here today. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to notice here what happens with the Apostle Paul. Look, verse 7 with me. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, the Apostle says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, Paul had an affliction. Some believe it was his eyesight. and He was asking the Lord to take it away from him. Notice what verse 8 says. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my what? My grace, don't miss this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I'm going to suggest something you're going to see here in the Scripture very clearly. See, a lot of times we talk about grace, and we say, oh, grace, that's God's unmerited favor. You ever heard that before? Unmerited, undeserved favor. That's true. But the question we have to ask is this, how does God or how has God shown us his unmerited favor? What did he do for us to show us that favor? I'll tell you what he did. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. He gave us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Notice what the apostle Paul here is saying now. The Lord is saying, my grace is sufficient because my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
He's equating his grace with his strength or his power to live a new life. Therefore, Paul says, I will most gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let's look at it another place, just in case you think I'm making it up. Go back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. I'm just going to look at a couple more here. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. The Bible says, And with great what? Great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This idea of power is all through. Now, we're looking at it in connection with grace, but we could look at other places that talk about the resurrection of Christ. When you look at Paul's description of his gospel, he says his gospel was the death, burial, and resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? So important is it in 1 Corinthians 15 that he says if Christ isn't raised, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. What's he saying? He's saying that that power of the resurrection testifies of the power of Christ to change us. Now here he says great grace and great power, but we're not done. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Sorry I had him in that order. We should have probably stayed in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, or going back to 1 Corinthians I should say. 1 Corinthians 15, and look at verse 10. First Corinthians 15, verse 10 says, But by the what? Grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I what? Labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the what? But the grace of God which was with me. The grace of God which was with me what? What did the grace do? It labored. Right? He said, I labored more abundantly. But actually, it wasn't really me. It was the grace of God in me. The grace of God labored? See, that doesn't fit real well if you're just looking at the grace of God as God feels warm towards us. But the grace of God is more than that. In his warmth, he gives us power. The gospel is power, the power of God unto salvation. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. I'm doing this quickly, but I, I was going to leave it out altogether. But brothers and sisters, it's important, important for us to understand that the grace of God is far more than many have appreciated it to be. Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Hebrews 12 and verse 28. The Bible says here, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have what? Grace by which we may do what? Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What are we doing by God's grace? It's enabling us to serve him. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is the message of God's transforming power. The gospel is the promise of God for newness of life starting when? With the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is when? When I first accept Jesus. And when we grasp that, there is nothing 
that we will not attempt and achieve in our Christian lives. I get weary of the kind of faith that I hear about today that has no power in it. The Savior that has no power. Well, we're just going to be sinning right up to when Jesus comes. Have you ever heard that? What? Let me ask you a question. Are we going to be sinning in heaven? Who's going to stop us there? If I'm sinning now and I'm not going to be sinning there, how am I going to stop? Well, you say God's going to have to stop us, right? Well, why can't he stop me here? Why does he have to wait till there? He doesn't. The gospel says he can and will stop us from sinning here. Right here we have the power of God unto salvation. This is why Jesus ministers in our behalf right now in the sanctuary above, because he wants us to have newness of life. Isn't that what the Bible says? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So Paul says in Philippians that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. If by any means I may attain one day to the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to know the power now so I can be ready then. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has promised us. What we learned in our Sabbath school class this morning, we're reminded of super abundantly, exceedingly super abundantly, more than we could possibly ask or think. Some of us attempt very little in our Christian lives. Some of us lament our weaknesses and our sins and feel like we're just stuck where we are. We need a new view of the Savior and his imputed righteousness that can transform us here and now. If only you'll receive it. When the Lord Jesus comes again, there's not going to be anybody who can say, you know, Lord, I just didn't have opportunity. Lord, my sins were just too great. No, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. New meaning, right? That power of God will overcome anything you have if you put your trust in Jesus. How many of you want to have the faith that appropriates that righteousness of Christ to you today, to live that new life in Jesus today, to have the power of God in your life today. How many of you want the kind of life that people are going to look at you and say, this person has been with Jesus? Is that your desire today? Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father in heaven, Father, I pray that with the things that we've looked at today, it would just remind us that the gospel is about your saving power. It's about transformation of life. It's about restoring all that humanity has lost because of sin. It's about leaving that prison cell of sin behind us and experiencing newness of life in Christ now, today. Lord, help us not to be unbelieving. But help us to believe to the saving of the soul. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.